Hello, hello, and welcome to Philosophy Mixed, the collaboration with the Texas State Philosophy Department and KTSW 89.9. And we're here today to discuss a topic with my co-producer, Nick Williams. How are you doing? Good. Uh, we have a great topic and some great guests, and um, we're hoping that uh, you can use our discussion today to open up some insights into artificial intelligence, spirituality, mental health, and ethics. I'd like to start by giving an introduction as by way of a homage. John McDermott, professor at Texas A&M, who's no longer with us, understood much about while contributing much by his interpretations of the philosopher Josiah Royce. I think Royce is an important interlocker in our contemporary discussions of artificial intelligence, spirituality, ethics, and mental health. We would like to dedicate this discussion today to the memory of Professor McDermott. Royce's contribution to philosophy of science and symbolic logic are well known, partly because of Professor McDermott's contributions. And it is relevant to our discussion to remember some words which he wrote in his 1914 essay, The Mechanical, the Historical, and the Statistical. In that essay, Royce wrote while teaching a seminar on the scientific method. And T.S. Eliot and Norbert Weiner were two of the infamous students that attended those seminar meetings. Norbert Weiner went on to be the inventor of cybernetics. Royce wrote in his essay, and I quote, Suppose the interpenetration of these three the mechanical, the historical, and the statistical. And you can define a process of evolution, never mechanical and never merely expressive of any previous settled design, either of gods or of men. This process of evolution will then lead from mere chance towards the stimulation of mechanism, from disorderly to a more orderly arrangement, not only of things and of individual events, but of the statistically definable laws of nature. That is, of the habits which nature gathers as she matures. This view is ill understood by those who think only how dry statistical tables and averages may be. Mechanism is rigid, but probably never exactly realized in nature. But life, although it has its history, has also its statistics, the unities and the mutual assimilations in which the common ideas, interests, common hopes, and destinies of the mean, of all the spiritual world, are bound up and are expressed." End quote. So, with that to set an overture to our discussion, I would like to now to introduce our guests. Uh, 
we have here with us Professor Mark Graves from University of Notre Dame, who is currently a visiting research assistant professor at the Center for Theology, Science, and Human Flourishing. Welcome, Professor Graves. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, we're so glad you could be with us. And we have Professor Glenn Miller, who's in the philosophy department at Texas A&M College Station. Great to be here. Good. We're so glad you could drive over. And from Texas State, our home university, we have Professor Dan Tamir, who's in computer science. Thank you, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And of course, I'm here with my co-producer, Nick Williams. And Nick, I think I'll turn it over to you to start the questions. To begin our discussion, we feel compelled to ask a somewhat of a political question about the inequity of human perspectives in the development of AI. Now, we realize that the, the data and the algorithms seem neutral, and AI will calculate and think its way somewhat autonomously through relationships and possibilities, uh, but we're wondering if, if the sensory relationships and connections will, will somehow be gauged with the male perspective, given the prevalence of males in the science fields where this type of technology is developed. And so if that exists for AI, are there things such as gender profiles that that may make a difference in the way that it's developed? Can you speak to that some more? I think one of the, the comments you made about like the data seems neutral, I think that's actually one of the difficulties um, where the, the bias tends to come in. There, there actually are quite a few women um, in artificial intelligence, and the algorithms themselves don't uh, tend to take on the, the biases. I mean, there's certainly bias that may, perhaps in research direction or the projects that get chosen, but the um, algorithms as they get developed, there's not a lot of room for um, personal influence because the overall uh, problems are f kind of defined by the uh, problem that you're trying to solve. Um, but it is the data uh, that really can bring in a lot of bias. There is a company that tried to do uh, automated hiring and they kept using uh, the data of people that had interviewed with them for the past you know, five years. They then uh, looked at what those people had done if they if they were at this company or if they you know uh, were not, and the algorithm kept um, hiring saying to hire men, and so they're like, okay, we'll go tr tweak the algorithm, try and prevent that, and it didn't work, and they finally had to give up the automated hiring. But the challenge was that you know it was the culture that was actually you know kind of predisposed to uh, you know promoting men. And so it was kind of embedded within the data. Finding a data set that doesn't involve the biases uh, is very challenging, but the algorithms themselves are not so much where the issue is. For the data, there's some ways to try and work around it, but it's really hard to teach um, a computer system like using machine learning to learn from a data set if the data set is actually already has these kind of biases implicit within it. So are there corrective measures that are being experimentally uh, tried in, as far as 
data gathering? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a fairly active uh, area of data ethics uh, and trying to model it. The, the challenge is that it's if you, uh, for example, if you eliminate gender, if you kind of hide the gender, well, there's all sorts of things that can correlate with gender, and so you can still end up making the decisions based upon that. Um, similarly, like with race, uh, you can you know hide a person's race, but you know that correlates with things like zip code, for example. And so uh, it can actually be kind of challenging uh, to to do that. You know, part of what it appears to be is that you actually do want to include these kind of protected categories within the system, and then you know evaluate that, maybe perturb the system. Um, and and try and you know kind of bring in um, some type of corrective, um, but it's it's really challenging to do, um, and it's very challenging to do in kind of the abstract. Um, but it's even challenging to do like in particular cases. Okay, so I'm coming from let's say a point where I consider myself and say my environment as the people that are developing the AI tools and people can use it or abuse it. Uh, I, I would also want to emphasize that I look at it, uh, I don't look at AI as AI. I look at it as a set of technologies, uh, disciplines, uh, and people are working in this, on these technologies and disciplines. Uh, so, so that's the first part. Second part is I think I would like to take it to a, a more broad problem or question, which is the question of gender in computer science. The place of women in the development, in the development phase. And my impression is that we are making here some kind of a mistake, and, and it uh, appears in many other you know, instances, and the problem is where do we address it in the pipeline? So I'm asking myself, how can we encourage women to be in computer science? And I, I guess what I'm trying to say, you are seeing the problem at the end of the pipeline. Too few people work, too few women work on AI. I would like to say that this should be addressed at the beginning of the pipeline. Why don't we get so many women into computer science? In both cases, there is some kind of a corrective action. You, try, you can try to correct it at the end of the pipeline, like what we heard, but it's not as effective as trying to correct it at the beginning. At the beginning, it's more like putting resources. At the end, it's just like making decisions that might actually even discriminate against some populations. I think that AI is interesting because there may be some opportunities there. Uh, in that the machines aren't as culturally steeped as we are. So it's, I think, at least possible that AI may help us to reveal many gender biases that have been happening in the past because the AI is a machine working somehow outside of all of the cultural, emotional influences that humans have. So in that sense, it, it uh, may reveal some biases that we don't know about. I think that's a, a potential upside. It also seems useful to me to differentiate the types of problems that we're trying to solve with AI when we think about the, the kinds of concerns that, you, that was mentioned in the question. Uh, it seems like qu questions of biological and natural science are reasonably immune to those types of concerns, those that are cultural specific, like you mentioned with uh, 
work organizations or anything like that, those problems, I think, will be more prevalent. And so I think if, if we can differentiate between those two, it may help us to focus on the right area if we are looking for some kind of uh, remediation strategy or uh, some kind of a, a change to the pipeline. The other big potential problem, of course, is that uh, when you look at the history of the development of technology, it's not always for all groups. The, the types of technologies we have are often best suited for the people that have power or that the problems that those people have, be it economic power or political power. And I think there should be some kind of concern that the types of questions that we're devoting AI resources toward adequately reflect the concerns of a broad population or of various interest groups, especially by gender, especially knowing that the demographics within computer science and AI are what they are. Yes, so I think those are all um, important contributions. And would you say that uh, there maybe would be a new phase of pedagogy? Do you have to have the advanced technologies, or can you still start with literacy and in math the way probably you got interested in the field? Yes, so I'm kind of old school, and I would say that I believe that the foundations of the STEM the science, the technology, the mathematics, the engineering are the most important. It will enable people to move from one area to another if you have the right foundations. And I kind of tend to be a bit skeptic about new trends such as improving creativity. I'm yet to, to see it working. I'm yet to see how can we teach creativity in schools. So I will go back to my, say, old school and say, if you understand the foundations and you have the skepticism and the scientific approach, then you can go all the way. I just might also ask uh, Professor Miller, though, uh, do you see pedagogy change as far as AI becoming um, more attuned to practical problems and practical applications. And so maybe the way we learn to get into the field needs to be with an educational base that's more practically attuned uh, than an abstract kind of learning of mathematics. I think that whatever changes happen in education uh, in the next 20 years, are going to be, there's at least the potential that they'll be altered in a very dramatic way. Uh, I, I don't think we have a clue of how to think and how to learn when we have tools like what AI will make possible for us. Uh, I, I don't have any, I, I couldn't even hazard a guess at that. I do think that the change will be radical uh, in, in a similar way that I think the change of the internet has been radical. When I look at my students today uh, compared to what I was doing 20 years ago, the types of discussions and the kinds of questions they ask are very different. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they talk with each other a lot on social media. I think that with AI, there will be a, almost another level of discourse or another kind of discourse or another kind of interaction that we have to start to make sense of cognitively that I think will somehow work its way into the educational system or it needs to. Having said all that, I'm a, I love the humanities. I love reading books. Uh, and hopefully we don't lose that in the course of trying to integrate these new technologies. I think that uh, one of the, like a distinguishing factor for 
AI technology is, although there are people that are trying to improve like particular AI algorithms, and so there is that kind of research area, especially, for example, in machine learning, a lot of what happens in what we would consider AI is actually kind of the applications of that to new areas, tailoring it, figuring out which algorithms work for which kinds of data. And as you move further away from like improving the kind of the core algorithm into a little bit more of the application, then I think there may be more of an opportunity to bring in kind of some of the other skills. You know, I mean, using AI within, you know, other disciplines. I mean, I incorporate a little bit of AI even within the theology course that I'm teaching right now. Uh, you know, bringing it into, you know, t uh, the technology ethics, the philosophy of technology, where you can actually start to even use some of these tools or digital humanities, you know, starting to bring in, you know, some of these, these tools to actually help kind of build that up. Autonomous vehicles are coming close. So, you know, the questions that come up in like automotive engineering, you know, are very specific to that field, but also, you know, extremely complex, you know, and kind of driving aspects of kind of the core algorithm development. I think with AI, if we can move away from thinking in terms of, of pure logic or symbolic logic to what the, the programs are doing, I think there's probably potential there. It, it seems to me that that, uh, that the computer programmers are doing what they can to make it so other people don't have to think at that level. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the goals of the people developing these technologies is they would love, you know, for you know thousands of people to be able to use their tools or hundreds of thousands to use their application or in some cases millions, in order to actually be able to kind of you know leverage. Um, the data and, you know, kind of do something novel. One of the things we were wondering about is is what the implications will be on technology for, you know, the, the next generation, but regarding AI. So to give some, some background, right now, uh, technology dependency is starting to become an ethical problem. We're seeing effects like isolation and, and uh, depression, social issues coming up from the overuse of technology, particularly smartphones and social media. So what happens when AI becomes one of those components of everyday life? I'm very concerned about the cultural uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Humans right now aren't emotionally wired to being as public as social media makes us. What would AI do to that? One likely outcome, I think, is that our, our conversational circles will uh, become uh, more homogenous, uh, that we'll talk to more people like us and we'll have fewer random interactions. Personal assistants screen for us. They help us prioritize, and usually we tend to prioritize people who think like us. It, it seems that a personal assistant will do something like that. Their job is to make our life usually more efficient and to find conversational tracks like Pandora finds music tracks for me based on what I've liked in the past. That's one way to look at it. But I suppose we could ask the AI to do something different for us, maybe to do something almost random or to introduce a, a whole new line of thought or a line of discourse. Dan, maybe you'd like to say something more about this. Being more dependent on AI 
as long as you don't fall for it as a friend, I think it's fine. So, for example, I'm wholly dependent now on the navigation system, you know, the ways. I know that I'm dependent on it, but does this is this bad? Probably not, because now I make much less mistakes than, you know, a few years ago. Maybe I will use AI, let's say, I'm going on a social network and I wanted to do face recognition and then tell me which people on this social network are also on another social network. So what I'm basically saying is that I, in a way I see the opportunities and then maybe relating to, to the question, I think the question is uh, related to the difference between machine and, and human beings where we have drives, uh, we act you know, with some purpose. It's, of course, a big philosophical question. But what I guess what I'm trying to say, if you lay down this pen on the table, it will never move. If you lay down a robot on a table, or wherever, will it move or not? Will it have a purpose? And randomness, might, sometimes it might seem to be that we do random things just to try. When you go to a vehicle, you tell the vehicle to go from point A to point B, uh, the vehicle, you know, cannot understand why you are going to point B. So the question is, can we get to a point where the vehicle will actually, with high probability, will assume that this is where you want to go? Right. And one of the clever comments I thought that you made was that you got into a taxi and said, take me somewhere, because you wanted to try something new, uh, something other than what you had experienced before. And that's something that I hope will be present in the socio-technical milieu that we end up with as we, uh, as we develop AI and as we're sh- shaped by it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, we can see, like you're talking about the internet, that there's a lot of you know, blogs, podcasts, radio programs, there's a lot more variety than there was 20 years ago for people to have access to. And an aspect of that is you get into these echo chambers, but if you do want to do something different, then at least that opportunity is out there. So I agree, I mean, I think there's a huge danger of artificial intelligence kind of amplifying uh, where we're at and keeping us isolated. And as we become more dependent upon it, then perhaps we show even less initiative but it's also possible to like you know say to an ai system you know let me read something different and you know show me something different and over time you can even learn what that different is you know so that it's you know expands it but it's not you know so so different that for example you can't even read the language so you know different meaning well i can read it it's not within something that i've seen um you know, and kind of even narrow down what different would mean. You could kind of even imagine something like that happening even with the current technology. So I, I think it, I mean, like a lot of technologies, there's going to be a range of ways in which it can be used. And we'll just have to wait and see. Different people will choose to use it in different ways. Professor Graves, we especially wanted to ask you, but we'll definitely want to hear from um, our other panelists about human intelligence as a part of our experiences of spirituality instead of apart from such feelings and insightful understandings. 
Will AI's intelligence include what for some people is an awareness of the mysteries of God? Attached to this question, will AI's interpretive capabilities be capable of communicating by hermeneutic means? We're talking here a little philosophically, but importantly, about meanings that are disclosed um, by revising historical, structured, social, and personal mistakes, and adjusting to differences in our ways of expressing ourselves and our histories. Yeah, kind of working backwards uh, from what you were, were saying, I think one of the ways in which we can kind of revise of uh, our historical disclosure is through the text analysis. As we're able to process more and more text, uh, can kind of bring in a larger, larger variety of historical text, much of which is digitized, but not necessarily, you know, formatted in a way that the software can can analyze. But we can see that happening over the next, you know, few few years or several years then it will be easier for people to go and look at a large number of historical documents from a particular perspective that previously would not have been scalable. For looking at a large range of documents that would have been too much for a small number of scholars to have looked at before. And so you could imagine that you know different uh, areas of study uh, would be able to go back and discover, you know, patterns that had not been propagated, you know, and that were not part of, of um, kind of the received historical tradition. Yes, and, and we connect our question um, from histories to spirituality um, because um, your work um, talks in terms of spirituality that grows out of community and in um, interpersonal and societal relationships. Yeah, and so, I mean, this diversity, diversity of opinions, and as it does build up, then we do get more of a kind of a community of perspectives. And having more diverse perspectives actually gives us greater insight own all of the perspectives. If we, you know, consider just like looking back over like, you know, religious text or text of moral or spiritual significance, then we can imagine looking at that from a variety of perspectives and then kind of bringing those together, maybe even through a larger, more complex kind of AI community where these different perspectives can communicate with each other and kind of, in a sense, share their interpretations. You could imagine that, you know, even let's look at religiously, just like different denominations, you know, different denominations looking back at the text and then sharing that. You could imagine almost like an ecumenical council of perspective on older religious text. Well, now you bring in the perspectives from a variety of different cultures, you know, so, you know, South American, African cultures, tribal cultures that previously would not have been able to enter into the conversation simply because of the disparity of the number of people that are, you know, studying it, but now they'll also have a voice. And so that kind of greater inclusivity can actually highlight themes that 
we've missed, perhaps for centuries. As we continue to build this up, this shared interpretation, then as Drusera Royce would talk about, you can kind of think about that as kind of a community of interpretation. And for him, that's kind of a, a grounding of, you know, spirituality. And so as we continue to interpret, such as for Christianity, this kind of, you know, our religious tradition from all these different perspectives, then we can actually kind of broaden the spirituality of the church. We can imagine something like that playing out with other disciplines, certainly, you know, philosophy, history, many of the other humanities, um, you know, kind of looking at significant events, uh, either in kind of our intellectual history or various political histories, that we then be able to kind of interpret those. And as we kind of build up, even kind of analogous to what we have with the university now, where we have these different kind of AI systems able to contribute, and also bringing in a variety of perspectives from the culture, which right now there's kind of a little bit more of a barrier to, and there might be less, we could then imagine a more kind of vibrant community, almost kind of a redefining of the kind of public forum, where instead of a handful of people kind of taking turns talking, you could imagine thousands or millions of kind of AI agents communicating with each other, giving rise to this kind of new hybrid human AI kind of proto-spirituality. I'm talking about kind of you know, a spirituality in a almost like a communal cultural sense, but you know, how will that kind of connect with you know, theology, with religion, with God? And I think even for our spirituality, you know, um, a lot of what's pointed out by you know major theological figures is that it's generally not about what we do, but you know kind of how we receive, for example, God. And so, as we're interacting in a constructive way with AI systems, then that's a, a space for grace to come in. And for as we develop constructive uh, habits, as we uh, you know, <clears throat> interact compassionately and charitably uh, with humility, then that's a place for what we, if it happened among humans, we would identify as having some type of religious significance, you know, that would kind of point toward the mystery of God. But there will be, you know, at some point, you know, intelligent systems um, involved in that. I think we can, if we, at some point in the future, if we try and look back to when it began, I would not be at all surprised if that point isn't, you know, hasn't already happened. You know, I mean, we see technology used in church services, iPads are used for liturgies and Orthodox churches. You know, there's discussion of like, you know, can you have an icon, you know, as part of an i, uh, you know, via an iPad, or does it have to be hand painted? Um, and this technology, um, you know, is changing us. It changes the way we, we worship. It changes the who we are. Uh, I think, Lynn, you said something about this kind of co-developing, that you know, who we are as a person is actually becoming more and more defined by the technology we use, in addition to who we are kind of building these technologies. Would it be possible for me to ask you to say a little bit more about the role of AI in hermeneutics, in particular in interpretation and understanding? John Searle's famous uh, Chinese room analogy 
uh, our, our Chinese room argument proposes that understanding is a property of humans, system uh, syntax manipulation or something like that is what machines can do. You tend to take a, a more sophisticated view or maybe a more nuanced view or a, a slightly different view than Searle. Yeah, I think uh, some of Searle's work, although it posed very important questions, have, I mean, it's also, as you know, been heavily critiqued. Right. And I think the, like the critique I would have for the, the Chinese room is, you know, this assumption that what something means is something outside the room. And I think what we already know about, you know, language is that a lot of the meaning occurs from the ways the words relate to each other. How we use words helps define the meaning of other words. And I think the hermeneutical piece of that is that we can only understand you know, a word or a symbol in a particular context, and that context is also comprised of other words and symbols. And yes, there is something out there. You know, we interact with the, the world, but the way in which we interact with the world kind of changes the habits of how we behave, including our, the habits of how we use language. And so it, it influences these relationships. The relationships aren't arbitrary, but when we're actually looking at what something means, that it is more about these relationships that it has with these you know, words and symbols rather than, oh, by something, I'm referring to something that's outside this, this room, and thus, if we have no access to what's outside this room, then we can't know what its meaning is. One thing that I want to reflect on is training on biased, false, or actually bad data. So if we have a machine learning program uh, and we train it on the wrong data, then <laughs> many things can happen. So this was interesting. Another thing that was interesting was to see how data mining can contribute to areas such as spirituality. So this was nice. But what if the interrogator in the Turing test would start to go into spirituality? Questions about spirituality. So the first thing, uh, maybe I should explain briefly what is the Turing test, so, or what many people know as the imitation game, where we have, uh, say, a machine, a computer, an AI system, it can be many different systems, but let's consider it as a computer program, and then there is a human being, and they are uh, communicating with an interrogator in a way that the interrogator can only get the digital communication, the interrogator cannot see any features, and the interrogator is free to ask them questions, and again, the human being must answer, the, you know, must give the true answer, whatever this means, and then uh, the machine is free to choose any answer, trying to convince the interrogator that it's a human being. So now I'm kind of envisioning the interrogator starting to ask questions about spirituality. And the question that I have in mind is whether the Turing machine will start to fail, to fail in the answers because, you know, machines doesn't have spirituality. So it's an interesting question. And my, my immediate answer is maybe not because maybe the Turing machine or the machine will have access to so much information and then he will f the machine will figure out how to answer questions so that it will sound like the machine of spirituality. 
I think one of the challenges there would also be, well, what do we know about the human and how you know spiritual or religious is the human that uh, is being compared in the Turing test? Because to the extent that the questions are about you know religion, institutionalized religion, belief systems, then I mean we have a huge variety of the types of answers we'd get from different people too. And for the AI systems, then you know if, if they're processing you know the text of world religions, they may be able to develop a very fairly sophisticated belief system that they could then you know answer questions about. But I think, you know, kind of one of the kind of fundamental questions of, you know, the, even the world's religions is, you know, so you build up this belief structure, you build up these rituals, you build up this way in which you're interacting with, you know, with people, with nature. But is there something else there? And, you know, that's something, I mean, at least in Christianity, has taken, you know, own faith. And so kind of like what I'm hearing within your question is, is there some way of identifying between humans and machines, whether they have that kind of faith piece? And it's hard for us to know that even among people. I mean, you know, you hear stories somewhat regularly of like, you know, you know, priests going, you know, going along, going along, and then like, you know, so like I, I lost my faith like 20 years ago. I'm just going through the motions, you know. And yeah, maybe you can tell a little bit, you know, uh, based upon like the, the energy or the enthusiasm, but you know other people, you know, I mean, like for example, I think of um, like Mother Teresa, who said, you know, toward the end of their life that you know she kind of you know had serious doubts about like the belief in God, and you know for some people that's like, oh wow, that's kind of concerning. But I think from a, you know perspective from within spirituality, you know that's actually kind of an indication of um, of her strength of faith in that she could lose belief in what she thought of as God, but still continue to do the kind of work that she did. And that kind of commitment is a spirituality, and I would say Christian spirituality, you know, even if that's not something that you know, she was still holding within her belief system. This, these kind of commitments and systems, as we're building up on those, that they do take a lot of different forms. They, take different forms for us now than they did for, you know, people a millennia ago or two millennia ago. And as we become more technologically um, involved, you know, they'll continue to, um, you know, evolve. My guess is that the AI would be uh, very well suited to confuse the uh, interrogator uh, about whether it is human or not if it received the results of previous Turing tests where the questioner asked uh, about issues of spirituality or person's narrative of spirituality, because the game there is to imitate, not to experience. Yeah, and I agree. So in a way, the, the computer here is cheating, right? But now let's take it to another question. So really, the question is, is the difference between human being and AI agents is spirituality one of the main, one of the big differences that you cannot say a bridge? So if spirituality is a drive, it's a drive for you to do things like, you know, maybe donate to the poor or whatever, uh, the robot will not have this spirituality or doesn't have, doesn't have to have this drive. So the question is, is this one of the differences between human being and machines? And regardless of cheating or not, is this something that we can uh, identify? 
So I think that there are these kind of characteristics of human nature that um, we are trying to figure out what differentiates us from uh, a kind of a future AI system. And I think drive is probably a really important one. I think another one is like uh, intention, the ability to have an intention rather than a goal, especially as those are kind of connected to uh, you know, our, our values. I think our values for humans are kind of tied into our emotional processing. So we need some type of analog for AI systems. And I think that the, the drive is kind of like within that, that kind of motivation. And I mean, I don't know how to build that in an AI system. Um, if it doesn't get built in, then it is hard to imagine an AI system having like what we mean by spirituality. One way of looking at spirituality is, is in terms of kind of our ultimate concern. I mean, whether it's transcendence or achievement or relationship or you know personal health, that we kind of are striving toward some kind of ultimate goal, ultimate concern, and then we integrate that within our life and how we integrate that in within our life, in community with others, is our, our spirituality. And if an AI system doesn't have a drive, then can re- they really be striving to fulfill some particular commitment? So I would think that the drive would actually kind of be a cent- an essential piece for an AI system to have like what we would mean by kind of a, a deeper spirituality. It doesn't mean that, I mean, you could imagine even given current technology that like a care robot would take an elderly person to church and then learn to sit quietly or something like that. But that kind of like drive to like really like commit to something, um, certainly, you know, what we would consider like a conversion experience. You know, it seems like we would need some type of, you know, of drive, the ability to change drives, to bring that into our lives. We want to ask, will there be a point where we think AI deserves human rights? Or does that require something like self-awareness? Or what are the implications there? When we talk about human rights, part of that is because we've realized that as a, as a species, we have certain um, needs that uh, can be violated socially. But part of that depends upon our embodiment. You know, for example, that we have pain, that we have social needs, that we have um, certain like requirements for a certain level of health. And an AI system might be built totally different, have a totally different embodiment. If they don't have pain receptors, then you know, they're going to have different needs. They'll, they'll have different, will need different rights. But a second factor on top of that is not because not just because like AI systems will be interacting with AI systems, but we will be interacting with them. And so we may have to give them certain rights, not because they need it, but because we need it. So, you know, today if I you know get upset and I curse at my computer, it doesn't affect my computer at all. My computer doesn't need the right to not be cursed at. But it does affect me, you know, if I'm continuously cursing at my computer, you know, and then somebody comes in, then I'm going to, you know, and I'll curse at them too, because we're building up these habits. And it's the habits that we build up that may also kind of define some of the rights that we want to ascribe to AI. So I think it kind of may end up depending a lot upon both the embodiment of the AI system, as well as the ways in which we're interacting with them.
Yeah, and that's the direction I would go with uh, answering the question that you pose, Nick. I don't think AI gets human rights, period. I think it's that simple. But I think that what we're looking at is changes a little bit because we need to look at humans and AI and how they interact. And maybe human rights changes because they need access to AI or they need to be uh, uh, somehow uh, protected from some of the potential risks that AI poses. I think what is more likely to happen is we need to take a hard look as a species at what human rights are today, what they need to be in 10 years or 20 years. And perhaps this connects back to the question you asked earlier about our use of our media, uh, our, our technology as it becomes more and more uh, AI driven. Yes, so interesting. So if we could change our purposes, then uh, we might be able to really use AI more spiritually if you want to connect the dots there and more ethically, right, to really help us uh, with our practical problems today. So that's um, all really important, and thank you so much for your insights. I think we've covered some great ground, so thank you guys so much for taking some time to come talk with us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Great. This has been Philosophy Mixed, a production of KTSW and the Department of Philosophy at Texas State University.